deep in the Donbass region, you join a mining community and take up work with the locals. On your first day, you descend into the mine, deep, deeper, deeper underground, and walk into the darkness. Everything seems fine at first. It's quiet. But then you hear a whisper. You hear it again. And from the corner of your eye, you see a white, ghostly figure. You turn to look at it. And it faces you. Its eyes are glowing and angry. With a cruel, downturned mouth. You see that he holds a whip in one hand and a long knife in the other. You turn to run, but the path you came down is gone. It's just you and the Shubin, the ghost of the cruel, wicked mining master who slew his own men in the depths of the earth and left them there to rot. Now he's cursed to wander the mines forever, and soon you will be too. Hello and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Devin and I have a master's in American History and Indigenous Studies. And I'm Sonia and I'm doing my PhD in Medieval History. We wanted to introduce the project really quickly for any new subscribers. Thank you everyone for joining us on this journey. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog about the ritualized year in its historic context. Uh, we want to explore seasonality and the cultures of Europe and North America in the context of the seasonal year. We want to focus on historical rituals and traditions, our preconceptions of said traditions, and how they might be integrated into our contemporary lives. We think this is especially valuable given that this year has really had everyone slow down and focus on how they want to live in a new world. We hope you continue to listen, and if you really enjoy what we're doing here, consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us keep this going and expand in some super fun ways. Um, we also have Patreon-exclusive merch, but to get to... The real thing that we're talking about this week, we're talking about Labor Day. Woo! It's coming up soon, guys. And this year, it's more important than ever because we've seen how a lot of people and a lot of workers who are normally very much not respected in our society and who aren't treated well, we've really, you know, COVID has really shown who the real essential workers are and which occupations we actually need in order to keep our society going. And we think it's important to talk about that and the roots of Labor Day. Um, the story we started out with today is the legend and the local folklore in the Donbass region of Ukraine about the Shubin, which in some iterations of the story is a friendly, helpful ghost who uh, will guide you through the mines, but in other iterations is the ghost of cruel, 
mine bosses who would abuse their workers and even kill them while in the mines. And we thought that that version of the legend was fitting for a holiday that is about honoring workers and also rooted in historical exploitation of the working class. Exactly. Um, So before we get into really talking about Labor Day specifically, worker festivals and festivals celebrating laborers have been around for a really long time. I don't have a whole lot of expertise on that. So Sonia, can you fill us in on some pre-modern and early modern traditions or festivals celebrating laborers? Absolutely. So this is by no means an exhaustive list, but when we look at antiquity, there is, of course, Saturnalia. It was a Roman holiday, and a big part of the festivities was this idea of inverting the normal social order. So, you know, you'd have festivals and banquets and feasts, and during this time, the masters would actually wait on their slaves And, you know, the slaves would be wearing nice clothes and they would get to eat all the nice food that they normally wouldn't be given. Um, So there is this sort of ritualized subversion of the normal order in terms of people who are normally subjugated get to have this day of being treated well. I mean, it, it didn't threaten the actual social hierarchy in any way because obviously this was a a holiday and it does end but the idea still stands that there's this this ritualized way of kind of subverting that order and to an extent we see some similar ideas in the medieval world as well Particularly on feast days in the winter months, there was local and local traditions around, you know, caroling or wassailing, um, which is basically where groups of typically poorer people and peasants would go either to the Lord of the Manor's house or go to wealthier neighbors' houses and they would sing, they would sing songs and basically demand food and alcoholic beverages (laughs) in exchange for their goodwill and their blessings. Um, So there's, again, this sort of demanding of a certain type of treatment and sort of this acknowledgement that, okay, you know, as the lord of the manor, I do need to appease my my peasants to some extent to keep them on my side and also they're going to stand here and sing and knock on my door and yell and (laughs) basically cause a ruckus until I come out with food and drink for them. I support that. (laughs) I, I really think that we should stop seeing caroling as like a fun like activity that you just do around your neighborhood or whatever and instead Everyone go to your boss's house and sing loudly until he comes out with presents, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's what I want it to be this holiday season. Let's bring that back. 
Yeah, that's what I want to bring. And back, or just like rich just... people in general, just going. Yeah, obvious uh, that that too. Honestly, just start just start showing up and and demand you know food and wine until they bring down stuff for you. And another aspect of this that carries out in both the medieval world and into the early modern world is guild celebrations. So guilds, some of them still exist today in certain capacities, but back then there was basically all skilled trades were part of a guild. So this regulated your training and the quality of the work that people did and, you know, the prices you could sell for. And you would also, they were, they also acted as sort of proto unions in that people would pay dues into the guild if you were part of it and then if you fell on hard times the guild would um, take from those funds to support you and your family if you if you fell on hard times or if you died Um, but guilds would also put on a lot of you know there'd be celebrations there'd be parades there'd be festivals around certain guilds so it was again this sort of yeah like there's there there would be these kind of festivities celebrating the work that people were doing, whether that was tanning or butchering or blacksmithing or tailoring. And awesome. the one last little thing I wanted to mention is sort of the legends and the mythology and kind of um, ideas that come up around the Robin Hood stories. Um, I think most of our <laughs> listeners are probably pretty familiar with it, but... That's uh, Men in Tights. Yeah, it's Men in Tights. There's the Fox version with <laughs> Disney. Um, the sexiest fox around. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I do prefer Men in Tights, though, even though large parts of that has aged poorly. I th- I just have very fond memories of the of the the Disney Disneyfied version. Yeah. I watched it a lot as a <laughs> child, but yeah, I think um you know, this this whole legend and this kind of very very popular folk hero status that rises up around these Robin Hood legends is is really fascinating. You know how you have people in a feudalistic medieval society and because I mean our earliest the earliest written evidence of this comes from the 14th century but realistically Mm -hmm. these stories were probably being told as ballads and in poetry and stuff earlier and Mm -hmm. yeah just this idea that you have this outlaw who robs from the rich to give to the poor I mean and this has Ugh, just stayed a, like in the cultural <laughs> consciousness for literal centuries. Just yeah. uh, just gotta gotta give a shout out to that as you know a way that people historically have celebrated these ideas of you know pushing back against authoritarian hierarchies. But Devin, I think now it's your turn to. <laughs> Tell me a thing or two about the history of Labor Day as we know it. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. What's what's <laughs> going on there? Well, Labor Day 
uh, came about in the late 19th century. And it's, it exists in North America, so in the U.S. and Canada, in kind of tandem with the, you know, International Workers' Day, which is May 1st or May Day. Um, and despite what you might see on Instagram and other social media posts, it was not created to be, like, a way to, like, distract people in the U.S. from this, like, dirty communist holiday of May 1st. Um, it's not that at all. It is a, a day for celebrating workers and was created by unions in the and people who are working in the, the labor rights movement. But before we get into exactly all of that, uh, we sort of got to talk about how we came to, like, what we know and call now the labor rights movement, which is still going on. So keep that yeah. in mind. Um, but in comparison to now, the 19th century was terrible. It was just, it was bad. It was a bad time. <laughs> Everybody was having a bad time. And essentially the reason for that is with the creation of certain, I guess you would call new tools, the modern factory industry was able to be created. So with the advent of electricity and coal power and steam, you're able to have these big factories and you're able to transport more goods really really quickly which leads to a lot of people living in cities working in these factories and also especially in the northern United States um, and eastern Canada it's places where there isn't excellent farmland um, you also right. have like a whole lot of stuff going on in Europe that I'm not super well brushed up on but you have a lot of immigrants coming from Europe specifically Ireland this is the period of the Irish potato famine so a lot of people coming from Ireland um, from other areas in sort of like southern Europe Italy Greece um, that kind of people coming and who are willing to work for very very little also a lot of people from um, French Canada, so from Quebec, moving to the United States, which had industrialized a lot faster um, because there was sort of a crisis of like farming in the 19th century in Quebec. Uh, Quebec doesn't have a great soil and they were trying to move toward like a lot of dairy production, which is what they have now, but there wasn't enough like railroads or decent roads for transport. And so French Canadians who also were being sort of subjugated by the English in Quebec, so they weren't able to get their hands on capital to become wealthier, were desperately seeking work and moving into the United States, emigrating to the United States, and willing to work for not very much. I lost where I was going with this. Anyway, um, anyway, uh, the there's there's talking there's, about like how you get all these like poor people who are yeah, willing so, to work. Yeah, so so there's there's a lot nothing. of issues around. So this this industrialization it really changes 
one, farming, but how people can live. And so you have people looking for a life where they can get cash easier, a more stable life, what is pitched as a more stable life. And these, you know, massive industries sort of exploding in major cities and, you know, creating the modern city across North America. And so, you know, with all of this influx of immigration and also just people moving in from uh, rural areas, much like people from, you know, Quebec moving to like Boston, for example, um, it was just this, this blow up of this factory model. Um, And because there were, this was brand new, there was no labor rights because labor like this hadn't existed before and because it's capitalism the the people who had the capital to start factories were the already wealthy and what the goal was was to extract as much wealth and capital from these factories as they possibly could so using the cheapest resources and the cheapest amount of labor to extract the most profits so you don't yeah just to just to backtrack for a sec, because, like, I'm I'm assuming these factories are really expensive to, like, get up and running, right? Like, you need to buy all these machines and equipment. Yes. And that's yeah, why and it's, be, like... And be able to invest, so, like, new machines, new equipment, right. people who know how to work them to teach laborers. Okay. And you need to be able to invest in running the electricity. So you need to be able to, right. like, have access to coal or steam or hydropower, depending on when in the 19th century we're talking about this. Initially, right. it's coal, which creates steam, but um, later, especially in Canada, especially in Ontario, where you have Niagara Falls, it's um, hydropower in the U.S. It's mostly coal, and that's where you get the the boom in mines as well. That's another part of this labor history is the mining in like the um, in the Appalachians. So you know West Virginia, Kentucky, yeah. uh, Eastern Tennessee, that whole area. That's um, a major part of this movement as well. Um, and again, this is labor like hasn't been seen before just grand scale the tons of extraction from the land for this coal and then also extraction of labor by these capitalists who are running the factories and this is part of the the issue here is that is the already wealthy are able to gain more and more wealth and there's kind of a problem with how we often in the states particularly this is less so specifically in Quebec but a little less also in Anglo-Canada um the way that we talk about this period of industrialization we often talk about like Andrew Carnegie who like you know rags to riches made himself a billionaire or what would be a billionaire in modern times he was a millionaire then but with inflation whatever um but most of the people were like the morgans and the rockefellers who already had capital and were able to invest and so you have this this wealthy merchant class that is just becoming wealthier and wealthier with industrialization and so like in quebec 
if you look at it, it's the Anglo-Protestants who already have money are building the factories and then using poor French-Canadian Catholics to work in the factories, you know, further create, like, making this crisis of uh, language and religious identity, like, more exacerbated in Quebec. You have, like, the uh, larger stratification in the U.S. Um, between like the north and the south and also between recent immigrants and you know anglo-americans who right. had been in the states for a lot longer able to build up capital um, it just stratifies the living conditions even more and even more um, because there aren't any regulations and because there's this surplus of labor and because you're changing from this agricultural lifestyle where the whole family in some ways contributed to moving to cities and again like then putting children and whole families in factories and that the whole family would probably be working at one factory that overseer has complete control of that whole family right. and the whole family's income so there's just this this unbelievable amount of control and the fear that, like how a lot of people who work um, so-called low-skilled labor now, because there's no such thing as low-skilled labor, uh, you have to have skills for every job, like people working in these jobs today, there's the constant threat that there is somebody else out there willing to do your job for you. That, like, if you're not going to put up with whatever this boss wants, then they can just get rid of you and you won't be able to meet your basic needs to live and someone else will take that 746 minimum wage if you're in North Carolina <laughs> um, and and do that job instead. Um, so there's just this, this threat and so people are able to extract longer and longer hours in the factories from people for less and less wages. Especially in New England, there was also this a seasonal shift where uh, because of like shipping overseas to Europe and different things and like the cost of running the factory in the winter they would um, pay people less and have fewer workers in the winter as this way of like essentially conserving capital and so even in the in the time when people needed the most funds because you were then adding, you know, fuel to your base, list of basic needs to keep warm in a New England winter, right. but with less wages, like, it just creates more and more desperation. So anyway, <laughs> uh, and these, this, what happens is there's, there's a couple of, of particular industries where people start coming together and are essentially radicalized right yeah. into the, the labor movement. Um, it's in the Appalachians, it's in coal mining, and um, then also specifically in textiles, there's um, a major women's labor movement because women and children especially worked in textile mills. And this is sort of broadly true across uh, the U.S. and Canada that these are the industries that really like fuel the beginning of the labor movement. And when I when I say radicalized, 
this was a period where there were a lot of active communists in North America. And people like to pretend like there's never been communists in the States, that like this was never a really big thing. But uh, the Communist Party in America was a major third party for a solid portion of the 19th century. And uh, I mean, to the point where it was becoming a real like concern to the two major parties, the Republicans and Democrats, that like these were viable candidates yeah. in the, the Communist Party of America. So that's a thing to consider. Um, but what happens is, you know, you get the rise of unions. So workers come together and realize like if we all stand together, then they can't control us you know if there's no longer that threat that someone else is going to come in and take your job if everybody is standing there saying like no we have to be paid more then you have power right there's power in a union yeah exactly (laughs) and so you get yeah so you get a, a series of strikes um particularly in pennsylvania in the coal mines um, and then moving out to dock workers and to the textile mills. Um, and this was super dangerous, right? The, these weren't like peaceful, they were peaceful strikes, but they were met with violence. Um, and that's where we get what becomes International Workers' Day. So May 1st, yeah, so so in the in the 1880s, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions set May 1st, 1886 as the date when the eight-hour workday should become standard. Like, this was not legal by any means, but they're saying, like, everyone, it should be the eight-hour workday. Um, right, because before this, it was like, you know, to my understanding, you're working, like, 12, 13, 14-hour shifts, six days a week kind of deal. Yeah, like often... There's no real limit. Often even more than that. If you could work... Jesus. If you were working somewhere that was, like, solidly electrified, it could be 16 hours a day. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah, which only leaves you eight hours <laughs> to do literally everything else. And so the idea was, you know... Eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what you will, right? That was the the slogan. Right. And so May 1st was supposed to be the day that this was, like, going to become an international standard among what unions expected. Um, and so then there was going to be a general strike starting on the 1st. And there was. And then in Chicago, um, there were essentially, like, multiple strikes going on. And then... Um, on the 4th, there at there was a rally at Haymarket Square that began peacefully. Um, but at some point in time, a bomb went off and the organizers of the rally were arrested along with some other people. And four people were hanged without a trial. Um, and... The others were in this sort of, like, sham trial. Eventually, um, some people were... Some of the people who had been arrested were released, but this was after four people were hanged, and it incited um, just massive demonstrations, like, horror at what um, this... The ruling class, essentially, who was controlling the police, right? Because this was the early, early days of, like, actual uniformed policing, 
Um, yeah. Not that, not that the ruling class yeah, controlling I mean, the police is anything, like, unusual for today, but... I, I was gonna say, this all sounds frighteningly familiar. Like, wow, nothing has changed. It's almost like this is what all of this was meant to do. Yeah. So, uh, the, the, the bomb that went off in Haymarket killed policemen and so these people were arrested and hanged for killing the policemen and then it incites many more uh like demonstrations and strikes by the unions involved and sort of from there after may day the may 1st really becomes a day internationally international workers day it had you know had a little bit it had had a history before that but really in north america like the International Workers' Day harkens back to this Haymarket affair. Um, right. And the rise of, like, progressivism in the United States especially. So this was about, like, this very patriarchal, like, we're going to help these poor people because clearly they've made terrible choices in their lives and that's why they're poor and we have to lift these poor children out of poverty and what have you and you have like various progressive movements trying to like you know clean up the tenements when in reality like you could do that by like paying people more but meh whatever but you also get a lot of radical anarchists and communists and then just like labor laborers who are joining unions and eventually right you do get an eight-hour day and weekends and time off and children's labor laws a lot of that is later in the early 20th century but as early as 1882 in new york there is a parade held by a couple of unions that I don't have the name of right now in New York. Um, as they expand across, as these parades expand across North America and Canada, um, the Knights of Labor, which is the at the time the largest union um, in North America, starts putting these on. Um, but the first one was in New York in 1882, and that is the first Labor Day, and it was the Monday, the first Monday of um, September. September. And this was really supposed to be sort of a day of celebration for workers. So you have International Workers Day, which is really about demonstrating, and you have the demonstrations that are going on while people are striking. But Labor Day has always been more of a celebration. Like, look, we got this eight-hour workday. Look what we can do when we stand together. And also, there's this great, great quote in a book called um, "The The Workers' Holiday." Is that the name? The Workers' Festival, called the Workers' Festival, which um, talks about the purpose of like these big festivals. Um, yeah, so they talk about how like festivals, especially in the Victorian period, as you mentioned with these early modern festivals were often about like subverting like hierarchies right and you know again caroling was really popular in the victorian period as well but you have like this festival was explicitly about showing 
the power of laborers and because they were so often depicted as like downtrodden and like sad and poor and like living in these terrible tenements these unionized craft workers in particular like pulled together these festivals to show off what they were creating to make speeches to support certain political candidates and to just like come together as a community and celebrate the workers who were building this new industrial world right that it was about like wage earners and families getting time off to not be productive and to just celebrate their contributions to society and to point out like how important and integral laborers are to doing literally anything. I mean, these were the people who are creating the pulp to make newsprint and which was how all news was getting around at this time. You know, newspapers were like seriously taking off and especially like in the next 40 years with um, the lead up to World War One, newspaper was a huge deal, um, but also ready-made clothing and fabric and stuff that's is no longer being woven in the house. It's being, it's these massive industrialized cotton processing plants, right? Um, right. So it's really showing off what what laborers can create, and so it's always really been a day of of celebration and of relaxation. Um, and there's an argument in this book that because it was a day sort of of rest and celebration, it lost some of the from the very beginning like within the first sort of five years it lost some of the focus that i guess original organizers it suggested wanted where they wanted you know a parade that ended in this big feast and stuff like that and people were just like they wanted to go to the beach you know (laughs) or something instead and just like hang out and they're like we're supposed to be focusing on organizing but it, it really like from the beginning wasn't even really about organizing like it was a community building thing so it was about workers supporting other workers and in a way that wasn't necessarily productive right may 1st was the day that we fight for our rights and labor day is the day that we acknowledge how important we as workers are and yeah you know how our time is equally valuable to people who happen to have capital and exploit it. (laughs) Um, So uh, it, in various townships after the initial parade and festival in 1882, very quickly became a statutory holiday. I think by 1886 in the United States, it was a statutory holiday and very quickly afterwards across Canada, it was, you know, provincially. I know uh, in this article about Montreal, it was 1886 where the first big um, parade in Montreal was held. And that they, the, the purpose of it specifically in Montreal and Quebec was really to be a secondary, like, French-Canadian solidarity celebration right right so along with saint jean baptiste it was you know 
because there was these massive um, unions being created in Montreal, um, and they were like specifically unions for French Canadian laborers, and so it was this these huge parades that went on um, on Labor Day, uh, starting in 1886 and going through, organized by the same uh, unions until the 1930s, that you know are really focused on workers as a collective, workers as like powerful and um, workers as a as a political force, and that so that's specifically in Quebec, uh, but also then has like a similar idea uh, throughout Anglo Canada as well. Yeah, so it's really you know, it's a it's a festival to, to yeah, celebrate. Yeah, it's, it's a day of rest and celebration basically. Yeah, yeah. So. To kind of round out the episode, why don't we talk about how we can honor Labor Day and workers and workers' rights this time around? Well, so I would say, in the words of my partner, who's a labor historian, who I tried to get to do this segment for me, (laughs) uh, Labor Day is a day to go to a barbecue. (laughs) You know? I mean, obviously right now... I mean, that makes sense. Obviously right now it's... uh, not always safe, but if, you know, you can go to a park and socially distance and, like, have food and bring food for people, it's a day for supporting your fellow worker. Um, And I know, Sonia, you have information about a general strike in the U.S.? Well, I I don't have, you know, I am not an organizer, Devin. It's not like I'm a... (laughs) I am not a, a, a linchpin, given that you know, I'm a, I am but a humble Canadian podcaster, and you know I'm, but uh, there there have been calls on Twitter and on other forms of social media talking about a general strike across the U.S. And I would say, if that is something that you can participate in, like if you are in uh-huh. a like look into this. Um, participating in a general strike, it, even if you cannot walk off the job and join in the actual strike, there are ways to participate. This is happening September 1st. Uh, don't buy anything on that day. Yeah. Support mutual especially, aid. Yeah, don't buy anything. Especially mm-hmm. not from those the, the major corporations and capitalist icons like Amazon and... Exactly, it's like subsidiary. It's it's okay Apple, to like all that shit. Yeah, like <laughs> you know, please don't starve yourself. Like go to the you know, go to a local small market if you need to pick up food that day. But like, the idea is, if you can manage it, don't go into work, and if you can't not go to work, do not support any you know big businesses. Don't buy stuff. Don't contribute to the, you know, capitalist machine. Um, The demands are basically that people want to use this strike to pressure the governments and, like, the government and um, large corporations just generally into providing effective COVID-19 relief uh, because in the U.S. there has 
not been much in the way of relief and there's really not been much yeah, in the way and it of was, access it was, to healthcare hasn't increased like yeah. there hasn't really been any help for people who have lost jobs or who have lost a lot of income so um again even if you can't f like join the strike as in not working uh not buying things helps raising awareness about this helps like retweeting on social media and raising awareness of this in your community like every little bit helps everyone has a role to play um i'm obviously not um as long as it's safe for you to do so yes. these can be yes of course not explicitly safe actions if you work in a place that is very anti-union so just be aware and if you can uh, support your worker, your fellow workers who who are not in a safe position to do this, um, and do it with them, um, right? And like, there's, the, yeah, like like I said, even if it's just things like don't buy stuff on that day, just kind yeah. of looking into what other uh, smarter and more organized people have said about this. It's, you know, the. There's not a lot of news coverage, obviously, but like, yeah. if you look on Twitter under general strike, I'm sure you will, you will see, you know, what's what's going on and be able to follow along there. Yeah, and speaking of social media, this is a great time to um, share like stories and songs from the labor movement. Pete Seeger, Billy Bragg, all of our wonderful folk artists who are out there creating brilliant union songs for us exactly and yeah i think we can just kind of close it off on value yourself value each other stay safe and you know take, join, take join a, day a union off. join a union you can always join the wobblies even if you're unemployed because of covid19 um, even if you don't think it's safe to unionize in your workplace, uh, you can join the industrial workers of the world. Uh, you don't have to be an industrial worker. They have expanded outside of that since the mid-20th century. Uh, and they will help you and support you, uh, on your journey for at least at a bare minimum knowing your rights possibly advocating for yourself um in your workplace um you can also take this time to read some labor rights history uh there's a ton of really cool um 19th century anarcho-communist out there emma goldman's one of my favorites um if you want to get she should be at the library <laughs> I mean, a lot of this stuff is also, you know, pretty pretty readily available to read online as PDFs if your local library is not open due to COVID. Oh yeah, anarchists are real big about making sure that everything is accessible, so you should be able to find some of this stuff. And don't let the terms and how they've been, like, talked about in a lot of capitalist Western media put you off of... The message. Um, check out some anarcho-communist writing, and just general labor rights writing as well. That's fun stuff. 
I like how we went from like, I don't know, how explicit are we going to be about this on our podcast? <laughs> and now we're just like, go read about anarcho-communism. <laughs> freaking communists. <laughs> Join a union, become an anarcho-communist. <laughs> Whatever. We are who we are. <laughs> so to actually round this off, uh, go to a barbecue. Uh, a nice distanced. safe. Yeah, wear a mask. Socially distance. I assume you're doing that if you're listening to this podcast. If not, what are you doing? Wear <laughs> a mask. Right. <laughs> Wear a mask. You're doing the wrong thing, bro. But yeah, I mean, uh, take take this as an opportunity to gather, have a good time, celebrate yourself, celebrate, you know, your friends and family. No matter what you're doing, whether you're employed or not right now, you are still... A worker, you're still... As long as you're not a boss, you're a worker. Yeah, if you're not a boss, you're a worker. Because even if you're furloughed or unemployed right now, you're still contributing to society. You're still doing stuff. And, uh, yeah, if if you're a boss, I'm sorry, you're not not allowed to participate. Go home. (laughs) 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 Okay, so, uh, see you next week. Do good work. Bye! Uh, Donate to us on Patreon. Support us on Patreon. We have really cool merch. Sign up on Patreon for the merch. You could wear, if you know, if you sign up quick (laughs) enough, you could have real cool merch to wear to your Labor Day picnic. Yeah. Think about how cool you'd look. It has a house on chicken legs. Uh, You'd be the coolest kid at the at the barbecue. Alright, and on that nice, you know, (laughs) <laughs> capitalist sellout note <laughs> we're gonna say goodbye for this week and thanks for listening when the union's inspirations through the workers blood shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one For the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever For the union makes us strong They have taken and untold millions that they never toiled to earn But without our brain and muscle not a single wheel would turn We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn That the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever is place the power greater than their hoarded gold greater than the might of armies magnified a thousandfold we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old for the union makes us strong solidarity forever